1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, folks, we are so pleased to welcome back to the show for a second time, Dr. Mary Ruart.
2: How's it going, Ron? Going good, Ed. We just got a California, uh, Bay Area County lockdown. Oh, so you're in official lockdown now. Official lockdown, yep.
1: Awesome, awesome. Do you have toilet paper and wine? Yes.
2: So (laughs) I'm ready.
1: I'm ready. You're good to go. Good to go. All right, well, let's jump right in. I'm thrilled to bring back, uh, as I said, I think last time on the show, one one of my personal heroes, Dr. Mary Ruart. It's Dr. Mary, right? Dr. Mary Ruart? Yeah, yeah. She's... (laughs) And... (laughs) Uh, well, let me just read the introduction, then we'll get into it. Uh, Mary Rubert is a research scientist, ethicist, and libertarian author and activist. She received her Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry in 1970 and her PhD in Biophysics in 1974, both from Michigan State. She had an assistant professorship at the and then took a position with the Upjohn John Company in 1976, Uh, Dr. Root was also involved in developing therapies for a variety of diseases, including liver cirrhosis and AIDS. We had her on last time to discuss her book, Book Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of the Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It. Both Ron and I highly recommend that book. And as I said previous, it's more scary than a Stephen King novel uh, because it's actually the truth about what's going on with the FDA. And, And Ron and I made most a lot of the times that we've been talking about the COVID situation, we'll we'll say to one another, "We got it. We should talk to talk to Dr. Mary Ruert about this." And um, now we've, we've we're happy to bring her back on. Welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise, Mary Ruert.
3: Well, thank you, Ed. Thank you.
1: And you're okay with me calling you Mary, right? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a tempest in a teapot that whole thing is. But anyway, let's let let's move on to the more important stuff. Um, you are uniquely qualified to answer some of the questions that both Ron and I have talked about and that we've been, been, been uh, asked by some of the, our listeners, but let's first talk a little bit about what your thoughts are r- around COVID. Is COVID co- you think COVID's a real thing, right? It's something to be concerned with.
3: Oh, yes, it's, l- definitely, it's definitely a, a, something a little different than we've had in the past. Of course, it's mutating all the time, so you know who knows how it's going to look a month from now
1: and and so, so that's a question but it's way down on my list but I'm going to jump right in and ask so mm-hmm. a vaccine that's been developed for that how effective is it against those mutations
3: ah well that's a good question i think they were pretty clever in what they did is they took the spikes that come off the uh, coronavirus and they used those rather than maybe changes in the inside of the virus, if you will, the genetic material inside. So I think that was a clever way to go. You know, that's, that's probably going to give us a little more protection for a little longer than we might otherwise have, because I suspect those don't mutate quite as much as the inner nucleic acids. Of course, now so, this is speculation at this point, so I just need to point that out.
1: <laughs> sure, and and that's is that is that what the and the M in mRNA is that that micro the fact that they're developing off of those spikes rather than the the, the, the innards of the of the virus itself.
3: No, mRNA is messenger RNA, so okay. it, it it's what tells the cell which
1: proteins to make. Okay, so that has nothing to do with those those the, the spikes that they use. But why why is that, that why why would this doing the vaccine off of the spikes be better than the innards of the cell for mutations?
3: Yeah, you know, I think again, and this is a little bit of speculation because we haven't studied these kind of viruses enough to be sure. But usually, it's the inside of the nucleic acids and the inside of the virus that mutate. At least that's my understanding. So, oh, I see. So, you know, of course, that doesn't mean that the uh, spikes coming out of it couldn't mutate as well at some point. But I, I think what they supposed, and I, I think it's a good guess, is that they would have less mutation. Um, you know, using the spikes would give them a, a vaccine that works longer than the nucleic acids inside. Of course, they could have used the co-proteins, too, but they, they chose to use the spikes, as far as I know. There's sure. a hundred and, and let's talk so I just want to you know say that there's 160 vaccines they're not all the same so
1: <laughs> no no that's that's absolutely true what but what are your thoughts not, not necessarily on the each individual vaccine obviously no one would, would would know that but the the technology that was used by specifically moderna that and I, I read this in a New York Times article that they actually developed it within two days of the sequencing of the genome mm-hmm. well that they, they had a two
3: Yeah, it's very different technology than we've used before. And, um, you know, I, I, it's really hard to say how, how effective it's going to be. I mean, this was a real new thing. And of course, the trials that have been done so far shows great effectiveness, which I was actually kind of surprised at, but it's, you know, the data looks pretty decent, as far as I can tell for um, lowering the symptoms of when you get coronavirus. I think there's, I think the jury is still out on whether it's going to actually prevent transmission. But from the data I've seen, I think it would be logical to say that it probably does, but it hasn't been fully demonstrated. That's my understanding.
1: Okay. So it hasn't been, but it definitely has lowered the symptoms. And so, so, so this is, was interesting to me. It was developed within two days and (laughs) in my view, and after reading your book, then the last. 12 months or nine, 11 months have been process around approval. And this just makes me crazy (laughs) to think about this. Do I have this right?
3: (laughs) Well, Well, think about it. You see, making a chemical or making the actual vaccine is just the beginning. You know, usually they do some animal trials with it. And then, of course, they do very limited studies and people with a low dose or you know just being very careful watching these people carefully that's phase one making sure it's reasonably safe to go into phase two which is sort of a combination of more safety and a little bit of effectiveness and then the big giant phase three trial that they did with um depending on which vaccine it was 30, I think it was 30,000 to 40,000 people. So that takes a while to gather that many people up, <laughs> give them the vaccine, you know, wait for the, the next injection and then follow them for what I think ended up to be about two months. Is, um,
1: is there a difference medically between some, something that's developed as a vaccine, which is a, a preventative, and something that's developed to say for heart medication that say let's say that you know lowers lowers blood blood pressure, that that should there be a different testing regimen for one versus the other? It just it in my layman's mind I just see well one is about efficaciousness or the reduction of some kind of a symptom that's a re- response, the other is really preventative from you getting something. Once it's proved safe, isn't efficaciousness like? shouldn't that be a, we could test it in a lot larger samples? I mean, that that's just my logic, but am I right there?
3: Well, yes and no. You know, the. Um, it depends what it's used for. A vaccine, this vaccine is going to be taken twice, I think, for most of them. They're going to give the first and then a booster. Um, with a heart disease drug, you're going to take it for years, possibly decades. So then the safety profile changes. You know, you need to look at it for longer term studies and what normally is done at least when i was in the industry is that the animal studies for drugs like that would go on for two years and then the studies in humans might go on even longer so it just kind of depends you know because you're it, it depends on how you're using the drug how much safety testing you do the effectiveness testing also can take more time with some drugs for example if the heart disease drug if you think about it if you're trying to if your endpoint is showing heart attacks this is going to be a very long study because the people in your trial are not all going to get heart attacks right so you have to (laughs) have lots of people and you have to take it out many years to see the effect
1: Okay, and you you mentioned, and I've heard this as well, that the messenger RNA is is new technology. It has been used in certain other cases. I think they developed an Ebola, but they just didn't have enough trials to to to, to test it. If the technology proves effective, efficacious, I want to try to use the right words. If the technology proves efficacious, and that taking a a sequenced genome from a virus and then quickly turning it around to a a, a in two days and and it's and that proves safe can can we make a certain assumption about a future vaccine that future vaccines that are developed in this way are just as safe or is that not something that we can
3: it it depends you know i think right now the concern is the new technology so if if safety is shown in these, and and of course we only have a couple months, some of these concerns that you have with the vaccine could go out for years. And so this is why it's, you know, a little ambiguous at this point. But if the technology doesn't show any, say, worse effects than a normal vaccine, and vaccines like all drugs have some side effects. Uh, if it's no worse, then I think there's going to be a lot of excitement because this technology is is cleaner in a lot of ways. I think than what we've done in the past. You know, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the vaccine uh, saga, of course, we were using <laughs> we were using a lot of animal tissue when we gave the <laughs> the vaccine, <laughs> and and of course, then you have the whole rejection thing going on and you know this foreign material going into your your cells and and possibly now we understand that the genetic material between those animal tissues and our tissues can mix <laughs> and that could be mm-hmm. bad
1: <laughs> right and
3: you have an allergic reaction of course to it too and and there, there have been some cases of allergic reactions already um in um i'm just trying to think uh i think britain and australia might have all Already seen some of those.
1: Uh, were you, I, you're not a layperson as I w- were you amazed at how quickly this was developed? Was this or or is this something that, having been in the industry, you're like, yeah, I, I, I've been following this. This was not surprising to you.
3: Well, I don't think it was so surprising to me that they used new technology and it was quick. That's mm-hmm. you know, every time we do things, it's getting better in terms of creating our, our drug or our vaccine or whatever. So that that's maybe not so surprising. I think the fact that uh, a normal vaccine usually has takes about seven to eight years to get approval is my understanding. And so this is fast, which is Good and bad I mean it's it's good if you if the vaccine is is really safe and effective uh, it's bad if there are long-term side effects that show up later and mm-hmm. you won't know that for a while
1: just just quickly before we have to take take our break are are you concerned about it where are, is that something that you personally would be concerned with?
3: well you know, I think what's happening now is because the doses are limited, healthcare workers are getting it, which makes sense because they're exposed, right? So that makes perfect sense. So we'll know pretty quickly if there are um, short-term effects, and mm-hmm. you know the long-term effects, though. That's that's going to take well a long term, you know. <laughs> so we won't know that. Um, I, I I feel pretty I feel pretty safe where I am, so I'll probably wait to see some more data come out before you know, I consider it seriously, uh, because there's always and, and also there's always this possibility of your body overreacting to the vaccine. And we don't understand how that happens very well. We're just kind of learning about that. So you know, if your body mounts a huge immune reaction and starts attacking your own body, that's very bad, probably won't happen often. But when it does happen, it's pretty serious.
1: Right. And that, and that could happen. Just It's a kind of a random thing. Yeah. Well, well, wow, this is great. I have so many more questions, and as does Ron, but we have to take our first break. want to remind everybody that you can contact Ron and me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where we put show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We will include Mary's biography as well as links to her books in the show notes for this. But right now, a word from our
4: sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
4: For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: Welcome back, everybody. We're here with our second interview with Dr. Mary Ruert. And Mary, I wanted to ask you, and not a conspiracy theory, not tin foil hat, just Where do you think this virus originated? I mean, probably an animal, but do do you think it came out of the lab or a wet market, an animal market?
3: Well, I've heard conflicting views and I think we don't know because the Italians did a study where they looked at blood that had been collected in their population in September of 2019, way before we heard anything about China or the virus, right? And they found 11% of the population had antibodies to the virus, at least as far as they could tell it was this particular virus. again, with mutations and stuff, who knows? But 11% is pretty high. In the US, the studies I've seen that were done with blood that was that old, the numbers were much lower. So at least in Italy, it looks like there's been exposure in advance. And if you think about it, that sort of makes sense because it spread pretty rapidly through the Italian population, which suggests it was there before. I mean, you know, these things spread, but they they don't like just go like a fire <laughs> usually.
2: Right, right. And
3: so, so that kind of made sense to me because Italy had such a hard time. So they 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 it was probably the virus or some version of it was probably in their population for a lot longer than say it was here in the U.S.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Wow. When, in the early days of the virus, give us your grading of the FDA's response, the CDC's response, what went right? What went wrong? What would you have done if you were been there or advising the president? I know well, it's they, brutal, it's, I, but I, we do want your opinion though.
3: <clears throat> I would have given, I would have had to give them both Fs and let me tell you why. So for the first six weeks, in the U.S., the FDA said that nobody, no domestic manufacturer could sell a test for the virus. They said that we couldn't import the tests from overseas. The only test we were allowed to use in this country was the CDCs. Now, if the CDCs had worked, that that might have been kind of okay. But in fact, it didn't. Uh, you know, the, the, what I've heard is that it was contaminated, which would suggest yeah. the whole lab is contaminated, which is like really bad. So but but the FDA held out for six weeks, even though early on we knew the CDC test didn't work. And in addition, the FDA forbade domestic manufacturers who weren't already in the business of creating protective gear for our healthcare care workers. It said they could not start to make protective gear. And we couldn't import it either. So after six weeks, the FDA finally said, okay, okay. We can have domestic tests. We can have importation of both protective gear and tests. And that was good because our healthcare workers were having to reuse disposable gear. That's terrible. Uh, but you know, because there were so many hospitalizations, everything got ramped up. And there were shortages in other countries too. So places where we normally would have imported them from uh, we couldn't for a while and then the whole thing with the hand sanitizer you know everyone rushed to the store to get their hand sanitizer there wasn't any more and and before the manufacturers could gear up to make more the whiskey distillers said hey we got lots of alcohol we'll make it and then the uh, the FDA said, well, you can't do that unless you put a little bit of poison in your hand sanitizer because if you don't, people might drink it because it's drinking alcohol that you're using, not isopropanol, which you know is is what's <laughs> normally in the alcohol products that you clean your thermometer with and stuff, or you used to back in the olden days. That's, that's probably passe now. So um, I think some distillers still their product out without that but <laughs> that's just my impression <laughs> from what i saw uh you know but that was again that was a needless restriction who's going to buy hand sanitizer and drink it it's not good, you know it's not right. going to happen and if they do better that you have hand sanitizer for the people who want to use it than worry about the one or two people that might drink it right 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 so uh, so i have to give the cdc an f for having a test that didn't work this is the place that's supposed to know how to do these things. And the FDA for keeping Americans from getting tests, protective gear, and hand sanitizer for the first six weeks of the pandemic. I mean, you can't get worse than that, really.
2: Right. It, it kind of brings me back to your book, because if, if a private company like Upjohn was responsible for that and they blew it, they'd pay a price. Yes. And the FDA and the CDC are going to end up getting bigger budgets, I'm sure.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Wow. Uh, um, did, did the government do anything good?
3: Well, after the six weeks, it finally did. Um, sorry about the chimes. I forgot nope, to check out. No worries. Out. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, after that, they almost went to the other extreme. So they really didn't check anything out before Well, I shouldn't say they didn't check anything out, but, you know, they basically were very generous in letting companies get their tests out and protective gear and whatever else. So they went to the exact opposite extreme. Now as it's turning out, the PCR test, which wasn't tested in the normal way before it was put on the market, has been shown to have a lot of false positives. And that's because what it does, you take the nasal swab, And of course, there's not enough virus in your nose to be detected from your nose. So they do what's called amplification. Think of it as maybe growing the virus up in a test tube. That's not exactly what happens, but just to kind of give you a layman's uh, way of looking. And if they do this about 30 times, it's, it's okay. You can get good results. But if you go, say, 35 or 40 times, now the chances... That your positive result is actually real and not a false positive is gets down to about 20%. And unfortunately, most of the amplification that's been done in the more popular tests have probably been probably been in that 30 to 40 range. So we probably have a lot of false positives. And so now we have to ask ourselves: are these, do we really have false positives and no asymptomatic carriers? Or Do we have half as many asymptomatic carriers that we thought or what? We really don't know if all these so-called asymptomatic carriers are really carriers at all because, you know, we have false positives.
2: Yeah, I I was going to ask you about that. So I'm thrilled that you explained that. Um, You know, I know you know Jeffrey Tucker. Yes. He called the lockdowns positively medieval. (laughs) What's been your assessment of these lockdowns, restaurants, bars, all these different things?
3: You know, there's a very high price to pay for the lockdowns. And given that we initially thought the virus was spread very rapidly and was very, very deadly, you know, you might be able to understand that that the government started out that way. But we very quickly learned that. It's not quite as deadly as we thought. Uh, There's some natural immunity. If a family member gets COVID, that doesn't mean everyone in the household is going to get it, even though they're there rubbing shoulders with each other. Um, At least 30 to 40% of them, possibly as many as 50% of them will be resistant. They will not get the virus or they will not show any Mm -hmm. symptoms. Uh, Again, (laughs) how we interpret that depends on how we think about the tests. So uh, given that, and given that the cost of the lockdowns is very high, not just economically, which is, that's obvious, right? But also the number of stay-at-home heart attacks has gone up greatly. It's about 28 to 30% in the studies I've seen because people are afraid to go to the hospital or they, you know, they kind of delay going to the hospital because they are afraid of COVID. And then cancer patients are getting delayed treatment. (laughs) The oncologist I talked to said, yeah, I mean, we're so slow here, we can barely support ourselves. So, you know, that's kind of crazy. Why delay cancer treatment? I mean, heart attacks and cancer are the number one killers in this country. So why would we want to do anything to keep those patients from getting care? But we have. And of course, suicides are up. A drug addiction is up. Um, and there have been studies starting to kind of count these deaths. I, the only ones I've seen with good numbers, what I'd consider good numbers so far, are the heart attacks. They're definitely up. And that's a big substantial part. So as time goes on, people will be counting these deaths. And I think they're going to be significant. It would not surprise me if they are as much as the COVID deaths.
2: Yeah, wow. Um, are you as sick as... Is- Ed and I are of follow the science. <laughs> the, I mean, science is a discovery process, right? It can't really tell you exactly what to do. And then we know science may not lie, but some scientists do.
3: Well, it's, it's this is this is the most this the strangest um, arena I've seen of politicized science in my entire career. I've never heard of so much um, censoring, really, I don't think you can call it anything else. Uh, Doctors who come forward and say, Hey, you know, I have this treatment that seems to be working for my patients, and they get kicked off YouTube, Facebook, Uh, they are vilified in the media. This is the opposite of what we should be doing. You know, they're on the front lines. (laughs) They're the ones who see patients. They're the ones who know, probably better than anyone what works and to, and to think that politicians are controlling what we can hear especially about prevention and treatment because some of the some of the things that are used for treatment like hydroxychloroquine can also be used for prevention and and so what's happening is we aren't able to protect ourselves if we don't understand this and one of the things that's been shown is that patients that have high vitamin D levels do much better when they get covid than other people, so you would think that there would be uh, this would be announced <laughs> over the airways, right, and that right. people would either go out in the sun and get natural vitamin D, which is probably a better form, or they would supplement if they couldn't do that, and at least increase their chances of surviving if they got it. But this this has all been hushed up, and and that's. I just, um, I mean, I can, I can understand why people think in terms of conspiracy theories when you see this kind of censorship. It's not the science. If we really followed the science, we would be welcoming all opinions and then checking out what works and what doesn't. Instead, as soon as somebody says something that's against the uh, you know, what the political um, correctness is, <laughs> they get silenced. I, I mean, there's been doctors that have had their medical license taken away for speaking out on these things. And this is terrible. Now there's less doctors to help in the crisis. And and for what? And, you know, it reminds me of, of Galileo <laughs> getting, <laughs> you know, getting persecuted for his views and Copernicus and all the scientists that really have helped get us to modern science. It's just, it's a witch hunt.
2: Yeah. Well, one of the things I learned from your book was the off label use of drugs and, and maybe in our next segment, when I have you back, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you about that. But unfortunately we're up against our break and folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to send Ed or me an email, send it to ask TSOE at com. go out to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe to the show. And our Patreon show is now, uh, sponsored by 90 Minds. Got 90 Minds? Check them out at 90minds.com. And now, a word from our sponsors.
4: The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today.
1: And we are back with Dr. Mary Ruert, her book. Which we highly recommend. Death by Regulation: How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It is uh, on sale at Amazon and other book places. So please go out, give that a read. Uh, it's it's a great work, and uh, really really think that uh, most people really will take will enjoy it. Mary, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the, the libertarian policy aspects of this uh, for for those listeners who don't know. Uh, Mary, you were once our the vice presidential nominee for the Libertarian Party as back uh, back in what 1980 is do i have
3: that right i was a a contender for the vp nomination and the presidential nomination uh the first on one occasion and the second on two but i never got the nomination just oh you
1: never got the nomination okay 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 so i have my my history wrong there thank you for for the correction but i voted for you Um, but I wanted to, Ron, Ron talked a little bit about this, and you mentioned that, hey, giving this to, to healthcare workers is probably the best option. Uh, should government mandate though that, though? Or how should we decide who gets the vaccine and when?
3: Yeah, well, you know, I don't think the government should ever mandate that we have to take a vaccine, because then it can force us into putting things in our body that we might not want there. And so, of course... That's, that wouldn't be the libertarian stand. Um, as far as distributing the vaccine, I've heard different libertarian theories on this, some of whom say they should, we should have a bidding war and the, uh, the vaccine should go to the highest bidders. Uh, but actually, I think the way the government is doing it here is pretty reasonable in the sense that healthcare workers are probably the most exposed, and if they get sick, then we're all in trouble so um that that i think is a reasonable thing to do Uh, as far as um again not mandated though now this is what i i think may be happening though in the private sector is that there may be hospitals uh there may be airlines that mandate that you have a vaccine before you can work in the hospital or before you can fly uh you know i might not personally like to see that. But, you know, if it's if it's a private organization, obviously, that's that's the right. Unfortunately, in a way, these organizations aren't truly private anymore. Um, Usually there's some type of government subsidy involved. So then you (laughs) from a libertarian perspective, it gets a little confusing, just as it is when we send children to public schools, you know, and then argue about should they salute to the flag or should they pledge allegiance or what? It's always much easier if it's totally private, because then you can respect the the private owner's option to do what they want to do with their own business. And that's not really happening here exactly. So those are my...
1: Yeah. It'd be, I mean, does it, and then you get into to private accommodation, too. Could a hotel chain say that, hey, in, that you have to have to produce your vaccine card before you stay at at a particular hotel or even a supermarket say you have to show that you've been vaccinated before you come into the supermarket? I mean, uh, we would say libertarian-wise, sure. But then that gets to a public accommodation thing now, <laughs> now too. So it's a, this intersection of, of rights again. Yeah, we'll we. You get that to the baker <laughs> problem.
3: Well of course, if, if a if a if a food store said you had to be vaccinated to enter, the food store down the street would probably go, Ah, you don't have to be vaccinated to enter here and then people who didn't want to be vaccinated would be giving their business to competition. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. there's a limit to how far that can go. And really, that's going to be true of airlines too. I think with airlines, they're more worried about the liability involved if somebody gets COVID on their plane. And I guess the grocery store could think the same way, except it's much harder to tell if you got it in the grocery store than if you got it on a four-hour trip on the airplane.
1: Well, uh, Ron, which was the airline that, that put the insurance in that that was part of their plane? Was it was it uh, Singapore? I think it was Singapore it, Airlines. No,
2: it was one of the Middle Eastern airlines. Emirates, I forget the name. Emirates. Emir- 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 Emirates. Emirates. Yeah.
1: Emirates. Oh, Emirates. On an, hold this. They, they 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 created an insurance that if you fly on there on their plane and you get COVID for any reason, they will take care of your medical bills which is a a really interesting incentive to have people come and and fly for that. So a great libertarian solution (laughs) Um, on the, on the distribution. uh, I think we can all, we probably all agree healthcare workers, best way to go, but there is a question of, do you then go to elderly, the best option, or do you go to younger folks to try to build up the herd immunity quicker so that there's less distribution so that it isn't, it isn't that clear cut, is it?
3: No, but when you read the when you read the data from these vaccine trials, they pretty much say that we haven't had a large enough group of elderly and people with comorbidities to know if the vaccine will be safe for them. And if you think about it, these are the very people who not only need the protection, but may be harmed by the vaccine just because of their body. And if you remember, uh, actually, maybe, maybe actually you and your listeners don't know this, but you know, as a scientist, I do. So if you get a vaccine, it does not mean that your body's making antibodies and preventing you from getting sick. Your body has to be competent, and not everybody's body is. And if you have comorbidities, it may be that part of the reason that you have them is that your body isn't competent to create those antibodies. So the question is, will the vaccine work? Mm. And, and we don't know. We don't know that. So,
1: um, interesting. So I so I did not realize that. So that the, it may, may even be a case that even if the and they haven't tested it extensively enough on that to be able to to know that with regard to the elderly population. Yeah, really.
3: I, I especially saw that in the Moderna trial. I, I can't recall Pfizer. I think had more elderly in theirs, but I don't actually. Uh, I'm I'm just, I don't know if they made that disclaimer or not, but Moderna did. Mm -hmm. And and the other thing, so, you know, when we have like measles outbreaks, a lot of times it's because it's vaccinated children that are having the measles outbreaks, because again, the um, immunocompetency of your body is an important factor in whether or not the vaccine works. And then how long does the vaccine work for? We are really clueless um, because we Mm -hmm. haven't, taken it out that far. So we don't know how long the vaccine will last. Is it something we need every year? Is it something we need a couple times a year? You know, just, you know, and of course, you know, with the flu vaccine, we've never gotten the kind of efficacy that we've gotten with the Coronavirus no
1: I, I, it was interesting that the, the flu is like 60 70 percent efficacy and then so coronavirus the, the at least the initial trials were somewhere I saw between 90 and 95 percent which which leads me to another question um, that they, they tested this the the, the double jab right, let's call it right so it's it's the stick and then a booster t- two weeks later I believe but I, I and i think it was the moderna trial they they showed that there's a fairly high effic- e- efficacy with with one two with just one one jab almost as high as the flu vaccine so then the que- so then the ethical question then becomes is should we double, double print double jab people or do you get it out to the maximum number of people i mean this is yet another question that's not in my mind clear cut
3: no and, and uh, really um the second dose in both of the vaccines as far as i can tell were where they saw more side effects um you know the side effects the biggest side effect of course is the injection site but um there were chills fever uh you know basically flu-like symptoms and about 15 on that second shot if i'm recalling correctly it was a substantial number of people now it didn't last very long i think 24 to 48 hours so it's not like life-threatening necessarily but it does tell us that the body's doing something we really weren't anticipating. <laughs> and yeah. This is the scary part. So, um, yeah, so, so you're going to give this vaccine to somebody who's maybe not immunocompetent. We don't know. They're elderly. Comorbidities you, you, because all these people with comorbidities um, are, are less uniform of a population, shall we say, than children. Mm-hmm. Um, then you would expect expect maybe you would have more problems with them.
1: Sure. Um, qu- question, just quickly going back to the, the CDC and FDA and your grade of F, which I agree with you wholeheartedly on. It, it, your understanding of those organizations, and I'm, I'm not trying to be an apologist for any administration, but would it have been significantly different if there was somebody else in the White House
3: Um, I don't know, because I think I think from what I have heard that Trump may have uh, apologize. I thought all my chimes were off. I don't know what happened. (laughs) um, I think Trump pressured the FDA towards the end of the six week period. That was my impression to let go of this, you know, these uh, restrictions on importing things. And if that's the case, then that's good. I just wish he had done it sooner because six weeks is a long time in the pandemic.
1: Right, sure. But but my, my point is, is these are bureaucracies mm-hmm. that regardless of, of, of who sits in the White House are, are going to behave in a similar fashion.
3: Oh, I see what re- you're saying, yes. Regardless. Yes. yes, well, you know, the FDA, of course, wants to protect itself from criticism. And so it tends to be most of the time super conservative. So in other words, it takes makes manufacturers of drugs do extra trials and things like this. People complain because they're dying waiting for this life-saving drug. But the FDA is more afraid of criticism, I think, from Congress than the public in normal times. Um, also, I think as I talked about in my book, and you might remember in 1992, the FDA started having user fees for pharmaceutical companies. These have gone up exponentially. So now the people who review the new drugs in the FDA, about 50 to 70% of their salaries are covered by these user fees. And this is what got us Vioxx on the market, which is like the worst drug we've had in the U.S., because even though some of the FDA examiners said, this thing is bad, it's going to cause heart attacks, wasn't totally clear, but the evidence was looking that way. And so the, the supervisor, the person that was the loudest uh, voice in this, was told that the FDA's client is the pharmaceutical industry, mm. not the American public, not Congress but the pharmaceutical industry. And of course, this creates a big conflict of interest for the FDA. So in in the case of this vaccine, of course, there was probably a lot of public and congressional outcry to get it done quickly. And on top of that, of course, the pharmaceutical firms wanna get it out quickly. And so um, I think they, um, instead of being conservative as, as they normally are, decided that, better for them to push it through quickly
1: <laughs> sure and Mary I've got I'm going to go a little bit over in this this segment but I wanted to ask you this question quickly as I mentioned Ronald Bailey was on the show uh, about uh, two two or three months ago and one of the things that he said based on this moderna technology is he thought that it is possible that what we are experiencing will be the last pandemic because of the technology that's in place. So uh, 30 seconds, your thoughts on that.
3: (laughs) Yes, if the vaccine is safe. You know, this is the big question right now. It looks efficacious. Is it safe? That's really the big question. We haven't had the safety studies. So depends how this one turns out.
1: All right. Well, Mary, Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home. Thank you once again for appearing on, on the show. Uh, we'll um, we'll have you back in, in the future, maybe talk about this in six months to see where, where we are at that point. But I want to remind everyone that they can contact Ron or me by sending that email to AskTSOE. Ron, of course, mentioned the Patreon site. We're also looking for continued show sponsors. So if you are interested in being a sponsor of The Soul of Enterprise, please contact Ron or myself using that AskTSOE at Verisage.com email address. And right now, one of the words from one of our sponsors and my employer, Sage.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
0: we're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: Welcome back, everybody. We're here getting a medical degree from Dr. Mary Ruert. And Mary, I wanted to ask you, I've read so much conflicting information from the World Health Organization, from the CDC's own studies, where do you come down on masks?
3: <laughs> well, you know, in theory, masks should work uh, in the sense that if you have COVID, let's say I have COVID, I put on a mask, I sneeze. Well, probably less particulate matter is going to get out. The mask will catch some of it. it. Won't catch all of it, though. So, and then, but then, if you're in a in an area where there's a lot of people going in and out and you start adding up all those droplets you know, that are coming through the mask on the side, on the front and bottom, you know, you can have a room that's pretty saturated. So a lot depends on, you know, whether the mask is going to be effective depends on whether you're in a place where there's already a lot of contamination, to, to use that word, um, or if you're in a place where there isn't much. And even if you're in a place where there isn't much, realize that these masks in general, unless you have a very specialized mask, are going to leak. So there's no 100% protection with masks unless you have like, a you know, the type that they use for um, Ebola or some other <laughs> type, right, right. Uh, you know, disease like that. So, you know, the studies I've seen go both ways. I tend to think and I, I, I tend to think that the reason is because it depends where you're measuring, you know, are you measuring um, Are you measuring like after a mask mandate? Are you actually checking people to see what's happening? So there's, depends how the study's done, I think. I don't think that you can look to masks and say, this is gonna protect us, uh, you know, totally. It's not gonna happen.
2: There seems to be like a moral hazard or a Peltzman effect that I've got this mask, so I'm 100% safe, and that's Um, not the case, is it?
3: No, 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 no. In fact, it, it more the mask will more protect people from you if you have COVID. If you don't have COVID, it might actually be a detriment to you in the sense that it's it's limiting possibly limiting your oxygen or upping your carbon dioxide, depending on how tight the mask is. So if you get one of these really tight masks, (laughs) it may work just the opposite towards your health because the high oxygen content in your blood is one of the things that probably helps keep your immune system healthy.
2: Don't surgeons change their masks every hour or so?
3: (laughs) It depends on the surgeon and the mask, but yeah, I mean, they, tend to change it and part of the part of the reason is it it can get saturated with moisture right you know when it's moist like that it's it's not i don't think it's quite as effective as a filter
2: i assume you're a free trader being a libertarian as are me and ed and are you worried that china produces so many of our drugs and the ingredients that go into drugs i mean we hear percentages like 90 percent of drugs come out of china which i know is not true, but in general, are, do you worry about that?
3: I haven't been because, and maybe I should though, because the, what we assume rightly or wrongly is that the U.S. company that's importing this stuff checks and makes sure it's what it should be. And probably in most cases they they do that, but I guess there could be ones that don't. I'd be a little bit afraid if I were manufacturing only in China without testing. I would, I would think that it would be smarter to have multiple um, places where you manufacture. And I think for most companies they do simply because a lot of countries require that the manufacturing be in their country.
2: Mm. What's your assessment of the COVID task force, Doctor Fauci, Doctor Bricks, all the others? It, they seem to contradict themselves, you know, just overall, what's your assessment?
3: Well, the problem is our science is is limited. We we really don't know as much about uh, the coronavirus and, and flu in general. And yet these people in political positions are called on to make statements of reassurance. And sometimes I think they just kind of say things that they hope are true, but might not be. And so later they end up, as you said, contradicting themselves. Uh, also remember the whole conflict of interest thing. The FDA is a huge conflict of interest, as we discussed earlier in the segment. My understanding is Dr. Fauci also does because he actually um, is invested in some of these vaccines and some of the patents for the vaccines. So, you know, when you know there's a conflict of interest, you, you have to take things with a grain of salt. In fact, if this was happening in, in a, a public forum, other than politics, uh, you know, where there were private companies involved, these conflicts of interest would be shouted from the rooftops and, and and they are in some cases. A lot of people, for example, don't believe any studies that are funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And of course, the FDA requires these pharmaceutical companies to do these studies, and who's going to fund them but the company, right? So of course, <laughs> there's a lot of them that way, and and hopefully we hope that our co- our companies are ethical. And I was fortunate in that I believe that I worked for a very ethical company. It was very conservative. They saw any safety effects, they pulled, you know, they pulled the drug or the they. They've not pulled the drug necessarily, but stopped the trials to see what's going on here before they continued, and that was that made it easy to work for them. I'm not so sure that that's as true today as it used to be. It used to be that scientists were in charge of the drug companies. After these 1962 regulations, that changed, and the bean counters were in charge.
2: Right. Right. You know, last time you were on, I didn't get a chance to ask you this, but there was that compassionate use waiver that the FDA used to give. Are you encouraged now that I think it's 38 states that allow right to try?
3: Actually, it's this, national now. Trump.
2: It, it is up. national. Okay. Yep.
3: That's and, it, and you know, it's a wonderful thing that the problem is those drugs still have to go through FDA approval process. So a company is going to be very concerned about negotiating one-on-one with a patient to give them that drug to try because if the fda doesn't like that they did that they could hold up their approval and since the first drug approved in any class gets about 90 percent if not more of the market uh, you know that's a very costly thing to do and most companies won't do it
2: it it also amazed me that britain Got the vaccine jabs quicker than we did. Does that well, tell you something about their process?
3: Well, I think they were very anxious to have the vaccine. Um, I think our FDA is is a little more self protective than that. What they did is they brought in a scientific advisory committee, and only when the, and that slowed things down for about three weeks. So. Mm-hmm. But the advisory committee said, yes, approve, approve. So the FDA can always point their finger at the advisory committee and said, well, the scientists said to do it.
2: (laughs) Well, Mary, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. We really appreciate you giving us your perspective on things. You're you're definitely, uh, you know, this stuff really well. So thank you. Ed, what do we have coming up next? Well, next time we meet.
1: Next time of week, and, and that, not next week, not the following week, because next week we're going to have a replay of our business lessons from A Christmas Carol on January 1st, our rerun of our show with the great Walter Williams. But then January 8th, we'll be back with a live show with Kevin Williamson.
2: All right, I'll see you in 503 hours. <laughs>
1: This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us in three weeks at 4 p.m. on Friday, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, though, please visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out.